Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. So today it's Hail the Conquering Hero, as Akil has returned from Washington, where he was at the Federal Society National Lawyers Convention. And one might ask what he was doing there, since he's neither a member of the Federal Society nor a lawyer, nor from the Holy Roman Empire. So, Nor perhaps conquering, nor a hero. But, but apart from that, Andy. <laughs> well, what I'm referring to is that Akil was the uh, invited, one of the invited debaters at the uh, Rosencrantz debate, which is an annual event the Federalist Society holds. And he was uh, debating against John Yu on the subject of ISL, Moore versus Harper. Uh, the case that our listeners are familiar with by now. And I can tell you that, first of all, you can you can watch the debate on the Federal Society website. Um, we'll put a link up to it. And uh, I can also tell you that uh, John Yu is, uh, rec- is, has been admitted to the hospital recovering from his wounds. <laughs> That's not true at all. He was great, but audience <laughs> members can decide for themselves. Andy is not entirely unbiased in all of this, but it was great fun to do an event. There were many hundreds of people in the audience, and Andy, I just got to tell you, this was a conference of it was sold out to 2,000 plus um, lawyers and affiliates, including uh, student chapters of the Federal Society from around the country in the Mayflower Hotel, a several-day uh, event in Washington, D.C. There was a black tie optional dinner that I think several justices attended. I believe Justice Barrett, Justice Alito, and Justice Kavanaugh. I didn't go. I didn't bring my black tie. Apparently, not everyone went in black tie, but I was feeling a little self-conscious that I that I um, did not bring my uh, tux down with me. But I can tell you, Andy, that I, I met many dozens of folks who came up to me and told me that they uh, enjoy the podcast. And most of them candidly wanted to talk about you. So there you go. And I would say, I'm guessing perhaps 20% of the people there have actually had already um, read the amicus brief and found it very interesting. So we will see going forward because, of course, the fate of ISL will be decided at the Supreme Court by... Uh, the median justice, who whoever you know that ends up being, is quite likely to be uh, an affiliate uh, of some sort of the Federal Society. Yes. Now, I do think that it was you know an important event because you want to have people paying attention to the to the the best arguments uh, about Moore versus Harper, and in any case, and obviously we believe that a lot of them were were presented in the brief. So to the degree that the, that people there were are discussing it, that's good. We want them to hear the arguments and consider them. Or, you know, so. And in fact, I began my presentation by uh, saying that I wasn't sure um, uh, how well I would do as a debater. Uh, John Yu is more polished, more humorous, uh, younger, uh, better looking. But I did say I thought candidly that my side has the better of the argument. And that um, the best way to see that would be to actually read the amicus brief. And, and one of the many advantages of the amicus brief is it's not just um, uh, my prose. It's Steve Calabrese's prose and Vic Amar's prose. We each contributed. I um, reminded the audience on several occasions that Steve spoke not 
in any uh, formal capacity for the Federalist Society, but only um, for himself. But he has a lot of friends in, in that organization, a lot of admirers. And some of the things that came up actually in the, the debate with John Yoo um, involved things that uh, Steve had actually added to um, the brief, and, and I highlighted those in, in my comments. But, but again, uh, audience members can, can see all this for themselves um, because it's on um, uh, a YouTube uh, video, and we'll post the link. Yes. So today we, uh, we've been promising you that we're going to talk about affirmative action uh, because it's come up before the Supreme Court in two cases, uh, the Harvard case and the North Carolina case. So one might wonder why two cases? There actually are two cases, and, and they involve different defendants. Uh, one is a private university, Harvard. It's not governed directly by the Constitution. One is a public university, University of North Carolina, that is governed by the Constitution, as well as statutes that also govern Harvard. In, in one case, Katenji Brown Jackson recused herself. She's a, a member of the Harvard Board of Overseers, so she did not sit for the oral argument and will not participate in the voting and opinions in the Harvard case. But she did hear oral argument, and she, she will participate in the, the voting and, and opinion crafting in the North Carolina case. So we're going to play you some clips from the, uh, from the oral argument, and uh, we'll comment on them. Uh, but I wanted to give you, we've done this before. We did it in, in uh, the Dobbs case, most notably. Um, and I think it's been quite successful. Certainly our, our listeners have reacted positively to it. Um, these cases are a little different. First of all, there's two cases. Second of all, the oral argument was very, very lengthy. So the transcript of the two went out, was over 300 pages long. Um, so we're not going to play you the entire oral arguments. Rest assured, I think there were over six hours uh, of oral arguments altogether. Um, but we do have a, a bunch of clips, and we're, we're going to you know, play them for you and comment. Um, but I'm sure it's going to be more than one episode, and that's okay because this is an important topic. And also, we've kind of divided the clips. Instead of just going through the oral argument, uh, you know, from beginning to end and saying, oh, here's a good clip, let's play this one. And then, okay, where's the next good one? Play that one. Instead, we've divided into themes because uh, when you go through this, you see that the, uh, there were a number of subjects that were argued and they tended to fall into certain categories. So let me just go over some of the categories for you, uh, listeners, so that you can see what we're going to be covering. And Andy, before you do that, you say we, but I want the audience to know that Andy did all the work here. He, he listened to the entire oral, he, he read the transcript, he listened to the entire oral argument, he picked the clips, he, he identified relevant topics and themes and organized them, and he's about to tell us what some of the, the, the topics are. And uh, audience members should know that I actually haven't heard the clips yet. He's going to play them for um, you and me, and I'll hear them for the first time. I, I had read various accounts of the oral argument, but I actually didn't read the transcript from start to finish. So this is all thanks to Andy's industriousness, and and I think you've got a real treat in store for you, audience members. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to listen to the arguments because you, you, know, you can't help but sort of think, okay, I, this is what I would say or in response or something like that. Um, so... So here are and, the top. And, and Andy, that's what the Socratic method is actually all about in the classroom. The, the idea is 
I, the Kingsfield, the, the professor, am only interrogating one student out of, let's say, 100. But the thought is the other 99 students are actually thinking, how would I answer that question? And so it's a way of kind of leveraging that kind of interaction. So I'm only interacting with one person at a time, but there's a way in which I'm actually doing a one-on-one with each of the other students who should be thinking, again, what would my answer be? Fair enough. Now, before we get into the actual sort of arguments that people were making, we we um, couldn't help but notice, or I couldn't help but notice, that um, everybody seemed to want a, a piece of the originalism pie. Um, you know, we've been talking for a while that the, the court has oriented itself towards originalism, and uh, we noted that Ketanji Brown-Jackson had picked up the baton in, in a previous case, um, and that happened again. Uh, also, Justice Kagan had something to say about originalism, along with Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch. So I'm going to play those four clips for you now, uh, and then Akil will comment on on the originalism arguments after he's heard them all. Then we'll get into um, arguments for and against uh, the propositions here. So the arguments for that we're going to review, that were made, were, first of all, and not necessarily in this order, but just to, to list the arguments for you. Here's the arguments made by those that are in favor of affirmative action, in favor of race-based preferences, or would find for, would not find for petitioner in this case, most likely. So the, um, the arguments were, first of all, that using uh, race-based criteria is, is a good thing, uh, because it acts, race acts as a proxy for all sorts of information uh, about the applicants that help us achieve diversity. Diversity is a goal in admissions that's worthy, and in order to achieve it, the having information about uh, race on the application, for example, a checkbox um, where you indicate your race, which exists currently on the common application, among other places, um, is is a good thing and should be allowed to continue. That was one argument. Um, Another argument was that, well, it's true that there are race-based questions, but it's only one of many factors in a holistic uh, application, and therefore it's not decisive, so therefore there there isn't any equal protection violation or other problem. Um, Another argument is that these Preferences have been in the application process for a long time now, and they're working. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're, they're making um, things better in a variety of ways, um, so therefore they, they, should, they should be continued or at least not stopped abruptly. And then the fourth argument was that if we were to eliminate these preferences, that the amount of diversity would plummet. Okay, that, that uh, would be you know, a huge problem with um, people in un- underrepresented groups no longer would, would be admitted in nearly any kind of acceptable percentage. So those were the, the main arguments that were made um, in favor. Um, now, against that, we have these arguments. First of all, there was an argument made that, yes, there are race-based preferences, um, but they but they don't just cause um, white students to be admitted less often, 
but they also are, uh, cause Asian students, Asian Americans or Asians from Asia, um, to be admitted less often, and that um, this is a problem. Um, another argument was made that admissions is a zero-sum game, so anything that is any race-based preference will necessarily um, disadvantage someone who's not in the preferred race. Um, even if you even if you do it as part of a holistic application, because when one person gets in, another person doesn't, um, they don't expand the number of students that are admitted um, because they happen to have more students they like in a particular year, um, that, that's, that that's an issue. There was also an argument made, or at least implied, that diversity's benefits are illusory, that the, the, the claim is made that it's a good thing, but maybe not. Um, not that it's bad to have diversity, but that the benefits of seeking it um, are, are not seen in the, in the way that it was represented that they would be seen. Um, the fourth argument is that you can't really do diversity honestly um, without numbers, without having goals and keeping track, and that really all this is just a, uh, a, a way of masking quotas that actually um, can't help but be applied. And then finally, and this was an argument which was made frequently um, by many of the justices, when do the preferences end? Do they go on forever, um, or, is, or is there an end point? And if there is an end point, how do we know when we got there, and how close are we now? Okay, so th there's, those are kind of an overview of the arguments, and obviously we're going to put a, a gloss on them, and you'll, you'll get a lot more you know, detail on them. So let's start off with some of these originalism clips. Every time that a justice wants to invoke it, I think we want to pay attention, since this is a podcast that does emphasize originalism, since we have the premier originalist here. So let's, uh, let's play the first one. These I'm, I'm doing in order. We're going to start with the Harvard case. And we've got two from the Harvard case and two from the North Carolina case. So I'll just narrate these in terms of who it is, and then after I play all four of them, we'll get into it. So here's uh, Justice Thomas. Um, Mr. Norris, would you um, <clears throat> spend a few minutes, uh, some time on uh, the originalism argument that was made at the last, the end of the last case? Absolutely. So in terms of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, the best source on this I've ever read is the United States brief on re-argument in Brown. It painstakingly details the legislative history and how the framers of the 14th Amendment saw it as a ban on all racial classifications. Uh, also, the, everyone knows that the impetus for the 14th Amendment was to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act of 1866. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 is a series of bans on racial uh, discrimination. It's a series of colorblind measures and requirements. And then the, one of the earliest uh, cases this court had before it went off the rails in Plessy was a case called Strouder, where the court immediately recognized that the purpose of this amendment was to eliminate racial classifications, no matter whether they benefited uh, whites or blacks, because racial classifications themselves impose harms. That's the affirmative evidence. Now, I know that the, the, the evidence, the pushback is the, the post-ratification history. 
Um, but the post-ratification of the history of the 14th Amendment is not the best evidence because we know there was massive resistance to the original meaning of the text of the 14th Amendment. But it also doesn't prove anything. Every measure that's cited in Harvard's brief was a remedial measure. It was in response to the end of slavery and the position that black Americans found themselves in. Harvard does not cite a remedial measure for what it's doing today. Those same measures that it cites would not be constitutional today because they would no longer serve a remedial purpose and not a shred of evidence that, that anyone back then used race to achieve the educational benefits of diversity. Okay. Next, we have Justice Gorsuch. Counsel, um, if I could return a moment to the drafting of the 14th Amendment. You uh, said we should ignore the post-ratification history, but let's just pay a little attention to it for a moment. Um, in the briefs, we have discussion about the Freedmen's Bureau that, that, that Congress set up. How is that consistent or inconsistent with your position? I think it's entirely consistent, Your Honor. The Freedmen's Bureau, for the most part, did not draw any racial classifications. It was classifications on the basis of being a former slave or a refugee, and the refugees at the time from the Civil War were mostly white. Um, in fact, when, when objections were made in Congress that this is a racial-based uh, law, the, the people who supported the Freedmen's Bureau denied the charge. They didn't say yes, but so what? They said, no, it is not. It is not race-based at all. Next, we have Justice Kagan picking it up. This is from the North Carolina case now. This Kagan? I want to ask it on a completely different question, but um, one notable thing about the argument here is that uh, on both sides, there's been very little discussion of what originalism suggests about this question. And I, so I just want to ask, what would a committed originalist think about the kind of race consciousness that's at issue here? I think that an originalist would think that this is clearly consistent with the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. The universities have come forward with powerful evidence that surrounding the time of enactment of the 14th Amendment, there were federal and, and state laws that took race into account for purposes of trying to achieve the central premise of the 14th Amendment to bring African-American citizens to a point of equality in our society. And I think what's so uh, notable, if the court is focused on history here, is that petitioner has come forward with essentially no history to support this colorblind interpretation of the Constitution that would make all racial classifications automatically unconstitutional. There's nothing in history to support that. And it takes aim not only most directly at cases like Bakke and Gruder and Gratz and Fisher in this case, but also at the court's entire structure here of applying strict scrutiny specifically to take into account when a racial classification might serve a compelling interest and be necessary to achieve that interest. And that, of course, was with the Solicitor General of the United States. Um, now, Justice Jackson. Justice Jackson? Yes, I just wanted two quick things. One is about the originalist um, position. A a isn't it um, at least ambiguous as to what the history is telling us about, um, about whether or not race consciousness can be used? Uh, I, I know your position and the position of some folks uh, is that it's clear that the history is saying race consciousness is okay. Um, and, and as Justice Barrett mentioned, there is um, uh, evidence of that. And if there is evidence on the other side, um, don't we need to have a clear picture of this in order to overcome stare decisis? I mean, we have the historic, historian's brief that says even if the history was unclear and it's not, overcoming stare, stare decisis requires something more than ambiguous historical evidence. Do you agree with that? 
I do agree with that. I think the petitioner bears a heavy burden in this case uh, because we're in a situation where stare decisis considerations apply, and I think it would be destabilizing for the court to turn its back on precedent here. And I think what can undoubtedly be said about history, although there are some complications in the record, what is undoubtedly true is that petitioner has not been able to point to any clear history to support the notion that racial classifications were automatically and invariably uh, unconstitutional. Okay, so everybody wants the originalist mantle. What say you? Just so. They're all talking about originalism. Liberals and conservatives, that's good. Originalism doesn't always have clear answers. Um, Sometimes I think it does. Actually, Andy, in the ISL case, I think originalism is quite unambiguous. I was actually listening to all these clips again for the first time, audience members, that I'm hearing them as you're hearing them, and I was actually heartened that it's obvious that the justices have read the briefs very carefully. Now, they don't mention the amicus briefs, but I'm just hoping that they read the uh, Amar Amar Calabresi amicus brief, the ISL case, with the same care that they obviously read the party briefs in in this one, because if they do, I think that's good for for our team. They did mention Um, the historian's brief, which I assume is an amicus brief. Oh, good point, Andy. Yes, I I had uh, missed that, but you're absolutely right. That's another, you know, wonderful sign that they're they're interested in in hearing from perhaps some scholarly experts. Now, two things that I think jump out are that the people who are challenging affirmative actions say if race was used um, by Congress uh, in the Reconstruction, it was used in a remedial way to remedy uh, past wrongs, and that's different than the diversity theory, which is the basis for affirmative action today. Put differently, if it's a remedial theory, that's about African-Americans slaves, perhaps descendants of slaves, although we're 150, 200 years further down the road in American history, and that's a real complexity. But their argument is, even if race was permissible, where's the evidence that is permissible to say favor Hispanics at the expense of Asians, or even uh, Hispanics over, let's say, Italian Americans, Not, not even at the expense of, but why are you picking groups other than African-American slaves and descendants of slaves, if your originalist argument for the permissibility of all of this is based on um, things like the Freedmen's Bureau, which were about protecting former slaves and their children, or their close family members, perhaps, of of, uh, former slaves. They also made Uh, the point on that, that the remedial remedial measures weren't entirely race-based, that... uh, Okay, you know, it's slaves, and we could, one could argue that the slaves were all, you know, African Americans. You could argue that. But they, they also mentioned refugees, and they said that the refugees were mostly white. So that the, even the Freedmen's Bureau bill doesn't strictly, you know, cause, you know, draw a race based description. That was the distinction. That was the argument that was made, at least. Indeed. And Solicitor General Prologger said, oh, there really isn't any evidence at all that the framers of the 14th Amendment were folks who kind of generally believed in colorblindness. I'm not so sure about that, candidly. I have not investigated this um, with the kind of care that I've investigated many, many other issues, but I do not think that John Marshall Harlan, the elder, the first Justice Harlan, is 
originating the colorblindness meme in dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, nor do I think he's just getting it from the brief of um, Plessy's uh, attorney. That colorblindness language, I think, is quite prominent in the 1860s among Reconstruction Republicans and some of their uh, even Democratic former Democratic affiliates. Some of the people who are great Reconstruction Republicans in the 1860s had been Democrats in the 1850s, like Salmon P. Chase, for example. So the, the folks who give you Reconstruction include a lot, a lot of people, I think, who did sometimes say things that, that sound a lot like colorblindness. Now, you could say, yeah, they were saying that because they were objecting to discrimination against African-Americans and, and maybe they just weren't focused as much on, on the affirmative action question. And that's fair. Um, Martin King said a whole bunch of things in my lifetime, Andy, in your lifetime, that sound very much in a colorblind register, that, that, that people should be judged by the content of their characters, you know, and not the color of their skin. He says stuff like that. But we know, actually, that Martin King believed in affirmative action, race-conscious affirmative action as well. So there's also the question of whether you're taking certain statements or clips that seem very decisive, um, from history and arguably taking them out of out of context. But I'm heartened, Andy, that, that, that the justices seem to be interested in this and actually the, the liberals as well as conservatives are asking about it. And yes, actually, I, um, I'm heartened that the, that the justices are, seem to be paying close attention to the briefs and actually to the, the expert scholarly briefs as well. So all that's that's good for America. Big takeaway point, which I would say in general is a more of a plus for the challengers, affirmative action is if there was race consciousness of an affirmative actionish sort in the 1860s, it was remedial affirmative action, mainly for black Americans, for slaves and their um, um, uh, uh, family members. Um, and, um, and, and even if it was about um, uh, uh, the permissibility of, of using race to even things up, I'm not sure that there's a lot of evidence this was designed for Hispanics or other ethnic groups other than African-Americans. And especially if the particular zero-sum effects of affirmative action beyond affirmative action for rep as reparations for African-Americans, if those um, zero-sum negative effects are, are visited on racial groups that are themselves not white, for example, Asian-Americans, for example. So just to back up for one second before we leave the originalist topic here, the reason that they're talking about originalism at all is because they're trying to find whether there's a constitutional basis for having race-based um, preferences or mm -hmm. are they, in fact, banned or, you know, or extremely disfavored you know, mm -hmm. by the 14th Amendment because of the original idea behind the 14th Amendment, right. or at and, least and one you, of the original ideas. And you heard a little bit of in uh, Solicitor General Prelogger's clip about whether it was an absolute ban or merely a disfavored policy that could be overcome by what today we would call st strict scrutiny, a compelling uh, interest that's a governmental interest that's narrowly tailored. Even if there's a strong originalist argument against certain kinds of race-based 
government conduct is an absolute ban or something a little softer than that. So if strict scrutiny is a little bit softer than an absolute ban, maybe you can tell our audience quickly what strict scrutiny would mean um, for this. In other words, uh, if the court says that the only way that a race-based preference is allowed is if it stands up to strict scrutiny, what would, what you mentioned that it would have to be narrowly tailored. I assume that means narrowly tailored to the desired outcome. Um, yeah, there, there's a, there, there are these doctrinal um, formulations. This is legal jargon. Here are three phrases that the audience members might want to know about. Strict scrutiny would require the policy to serve not just an important, or not just a permissible government interest, not even just an important governmental interest, interest but it have to be a compelling government interest, whatever that means. Okay, so, so strict scrutiny requires a compelling government interest. The use of race would have to be narrowly tailored. So not to, um, given that the, the interest at stake, the use of race would have to be not overly broad or under-inclusive. It would have to have a, you know, have a, have a very nice fit to it, narrowly tailored, a compelling end, a close means ends fit. And it would have to be the least restrictive alternative. You'd have to actually show you couldn't achieve this compelling interest by using some other non-racial tool to get to the same result, the same compelling result. Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind as you listen to the arguments, because I think what the assumption is that, well, if it's banned by the Constitution, then the case is over. We have to get rid of them. Okay, if it's not banned by the Constitution, um, but it's subject to strict scrutiny, then we would have to show that in order for them to be continued, that the government's interest was compelling, as you said. So in this case, the interest that is being expressed is that is diversity. And not remedy. Right. So, so you're going to hear some discussion about whether diversity is actually, is a, is actually a compelling interest. So that's and you're one. Gonna, yes, that's one. So that's you're one. also going to hear, you're going to hear other things too, Andy, you were about right. to say before I so rudely interrupted you. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the editing pen is for. Um, so, and then, you know, you mentioned that it has to be narrowly tailored so that, um, you know, uh, I suppose that we they would have to show that whatever measures there are actually are achieving diversity. Right. And, and also that they are the, the really, the, there was no, there would be no better way to do it, a way to do it that wouldn't require um, race preferences or maybe wouldn't right. require them for as long or wouldn't right. require a strict, you know, a preference, you know, right. and, and all these things. So, so the, the least restrictive, you know, could, could you do it by socioeconomic status instead? Could you get rid of legacy preferences, which would help the racial diversity numbers or something? You're going to have to show, gee, the only way of achieving this compelling interest is through the use of explicitly racial criteria. All right, so keep these things in mind as you hear the various arguments. Okay, so now we're going to do we're going to play for you some clips um, that have to do with an argument um, for the racial preferences, or at least for affirmative action, let's say. Um, and this says that the, the argument basically here, some of these overlap a little bit, but basically they're saying that it's only one of many factors. Okay, so therefore it's, yeah, it's a racial preference, but 
you know, it's, it, there's so many factors that it, it just disappears, um, you know, among all the different things that we're considering. So here's Justice Sotomayor discussing how this is one of many factors. Counsel, I don't know what to do in a situation like this one. If you have perfect scores on every metric, you're not guaranteed a spot at Harvard because they have enough people with perfect scores of every background that exceeds their class limit. At some point, something has to break the tie. And as we know, um, top 10% students of Asian and uh, of black and Hispanic backgrounds in academic and extracurricular activities are not being admitted to Harvard. So it's not as if once we say, take race out of this, that all of the people who are, that you consider super qualified are gonna get in. But on every matrix, there's going to be competing applicants. And you're saying a school can't look at its general diversity figures and say, among equal applicants, I might make race a tiebreaker if the numbers that I have on that metrics seem fairly low. Otherwise, you're saying, no, you can't do that. No, you cannot do that. That's what Title VI forbids. And, it doesn't and that forbid basically any. what you're saying is really race diversity is not important. So I don't actually see why all the race base, because all of the alternatives, whether it's the 10% plan, whether it's socioeconomic, they're all subterfuges to reaching some sort of diversity in race. You're touting them as race neutral, but none of them are race neutral. You're doing them because you believe in racial diversity. I just don't understand why considering race as one factor, but not the sole factor, is any different than using any of those other matrix. Well, I don't think those are, those are racial classifications in disguise. Uh, Harvard's never criticized Simulation D that we presented as a racial classification in disguise. It criticizes it because it doesn't hit Harvard's precise racial numbers. Um, it's based on socioeconomic status, and I don't think anyone thinks eliminating no, it, legacy. It, it reduces SAT score averages. It reduces um, lots of other factors to get to your numbers. I mean, I think that's our point, that, that SAT scores would go from the 99th percentile to the 98th percentile. That's not sacrificing academic excellence. That's moving Harvard from Harvard to Dartmouth. Dartmouth is still a great school. That's that they get 98th percentile SAT scores. You've got to make <laughs> I, some I, I sacrifices. Don't, I, I there are those who love it. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go to the next one, I, I, I couldn't resist keeping that last line in there. Yeah, so this... This is an Ivy League podcast of a certain sort. So that was a little uh, reference to the Dartmouth College case that um, uh, Daniel Webster, uh, Dartmouth's perhaps most famous alumnus, is defending his alma mater in an 1819 case. It's the 50th anniversary of the founding of Dartmouth. And New Hampshire is trying to take Dartmouth over, in effect, um, just grab it away from the, the folks who founded it and, and turn it into a sort of state school. Um, and 
Uh, Daniel Webster is defending his school from this kind of takeover, and he ends his oral argument very famously, uh, bringing, it is said, tears to the eyes of some of the justices. Um, in a case that, from a certain point of view, it's just about property, like who owns the thing, but not for Daniel Webster. Not If you're a loyal alum, and it's not just about you know ownership or something, and, and, and he, his famous um, uh, uh, line toward the end, maybe at the very end, of this oral argument um, is when he says to the court, it is, sirs, as I've said, a small school, but there are those who love it. Um, and that's how you and I feel about our alma mater. But there was a little bit of a, it was also just, you know, a little bit of a passive aggressive edge or snark, you know, saying, you know, Harvard, you know, would, would, would go a notch down. It, it would be Dartmouth. Dartmouth's okay. <laughs> you know, Dartmouth's pretty good. It reminds me, of this uh, New Yorker cartoon. It was an ad. The New Yorker said, Ivy League sperm donors wanted, parenthesis, except Cornell, close parenthesis. <laughs> and you see, now, Andy, you and I laugh at that, but that's just, a, you know, because we're jerky Yale people, of course. So, so, but here's the brilliant point that Justice Sotomayor was making, because it is a brilliant point, and here was the response. So I thought that was well played on both sides, that, that exchange. Here's what she's saying, and she's actually picking up on a very technical point that my great friend and colleague Ian Ayers made many years ago. Actually, we, we did a symposium at U, in UCLA in 1996, and Ian had a piece, Neil Katyal, the great Dartmouth graduate, who played Daniel Webster actually at the reenactment of the Dartmouth College case, um, and I wrote a piece together. It was called Baki's Fate. We'll put it up on, on the website. And Ian was also at the symposium, and, and he had a different piece. Here's what Ian said, and this is what she's picking up on. Because the petitioners are saying there are race-neutral ways of achieving diversity. And she referenced the 10% plan or something. So, so instead of taking race formally into account, giving a plus for being of a certain race, suppose instead you just said, well, we're going to take everyone in the top 10% of their high school class and we're going to actually boost our numbers of underrepresented non-whites that way. And that's formally race neutral because it's just the top 10% of every class, technically, whether you're you know, uh, white, black, green, brown, whatever. And that's race neutral. And why shouldn't you have to do it that way? Because remember, if you're going to use race, it has to um, be the, you know, the, the least restrictive alternative, uh, alternative. But if there's some other way of doing it that doesn't involve race, do it that way instead. And that don't, don't treat people differently according to their race. And here's what she said. And so, so that was you know, the, the uh, petitioner's claim. And she said, yes, but if you're doing this other thing in order to, to boost non-white numbers – that's kind of race-based in a way. It's a, she, I think the word she used is a subterfuge. Now, in technical law talk, here's what she's saying. Why is it that de jure race discrimination, treating white and black differently, generates very strict scrutiny, but if you actually use a proxy for race for racial reasons, for racial purposes, somehow, you know, that doesn't generate the same strict scrutiny. Here's Ian's point on that. Because opponents of affirmative action act as if they, they believe in complete symmetry. Government shouldn't be able to favor whites, of course. You know, Brown versus Board of Education was correct. Plessy was wrong. The black codes, which favored whites over blacks, 
in the 1860s were all wrong. Government shouldn't be able to favor whites over blacks, but it should be utterly symmetric, say critics of affirmative action. Government shouldn't be able to favor blacks over whites. Okay, But she says, ah, but it's not formally symmetric because it would never be permissible to use a proxy in order to boost white numbers at the expense of blacks. But you can use a proxy to boost black numbers at the expense of whites. It's actually not symmetric when you're using something that's, that's, that's a subterfuge, a mere proxy. Let me do it a different way. Let's imagine that everyone admits that you can't formally discriminate against Asian Americans. Let's say everyone admits that. But what if the government says, okay, we're not formally discriminating against Asian Americans, but there are just too many Asian Americans in, in our school, so we're going to switch to some different criteria that actually ends up with, with fewer Asian Americans. Under existing doctrine, that would also be illegal. If you move to a race-neutral formula that diminishes the uh, slots for, for, for non-whites, but apparently that kind of subterfuge is okay if you, if you do it to, to pump up numbers for, 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 for non-whites. Suppose we have a college sports team and blacks do extremely well and are very highly represented on the sports team. And the, the government said, uh, the, the college said, um, we're going to cap the number of blacks on this team. Well, that would obviously be illegal. That's de jure discrimination against black people. That's just like uh, the black codes um, of the 1860s. That's just like Plessy versus Ferguson. It's just like what Brown said you can't do. But suppose the government said, oh, no, we're, we're not going to cap the number of black people, we're going to actually switch to kind of a lottery system. And it will mean that there'll be fewer black people, but the lottery system is neutral. Ian's point is, if you switched to the race neutral scheme in order to, to, to push down the, the, the black uh, participation, that's illegal. That's an unconstitutional purpose. Um, but apparently it's a permissible purpose to move, let's say, to a lottery system in order to, to boost black numbers rather than uh, to suppress black numbers. And Justice Sotomayor is saying, gee, isn't that still not really fully symmetric and honest? So even you, critics of affirmative action, are willing to adopt certain government policies in order to change the racial numbers in favor of underrepresented groups. Final point, a 10% plan that sometimes talked about, let's just take the people with the top 10% of grades in high schools and admit them, say, to the University of Texas, um, rather than take race into account formally. If that ends up diversifying to University of Texas, it ends up diversifying University of Texas only because high schools in the University of Texas are so racially segregated. It works only because some schools are basically all black. Because if a school is all black, you're guaranteed that the top 10% of uh, graduates of that school are going to be all black. Um, it will not guarantee racial diversity if you actually didn't have huge racial segregation in the high schools because there'd be no guarantee at all that the top 10% in any given school would be non-white. There was some discussion about um, that some of these plans may, may not produce symmetric uh, racial diversity to the same degree as race-based preferences. 
but they might pr- produce other types of diversity, like socioeconomic diversity, viewpoint diversity, you know, things like that, um, and that that might be, in a sense, just as good, because um, or or better, you know, from some points of view, because so, for example, suppose you have, um, you know, the son of a of a wealthy you know, African-American that perhaps himself was admitted by affirmative action or, or not, you know, who knows. But um, so is there a reason to, you know, give a boost to, to that applicant? Um, maybe not. On the other hand, if you have socioeconomic, you know, bases for, uh, you know, admitting people, that is not necessarily entirely a proxy for race. Um, and it might not produce the same racial numbers, but it might produce an acceptable form of, of diversity. Yeah, you know, and, and we're going to get into that because the question is, what do we mean by diversity and what the schools actually mean by diversity is racial diversity. And and people like Justice Thomas, I think, are going to push back hard against that idea. Why? What's so important about racial diversity as such? Right. Okay, so we're going to get – so so you, you've but, outlined but – that, 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 But that was really well played, I think, between Justice Sotomayor and the oral um, advocate on the other side. So you're going to hear some more on this now as I go through some of these other clips. So it's, uh, it's good that you outlined some of the issues here. So here's another um, clip, this one from Justice Jackson, who's now talking about, the, again, the degree of a boost that this actually provides. Justice Jackson. Can I just quickly return to Justice Alito's hypothetical, which I think is a little bit helpful in trying to pinpoint a problem that I've been having. Um, It seems from the race hypothetical that if there was only one basis for giving someone a boost, and that basis was race, then I see disadvantage absolutely to anyone else who's not an underrepresented minority who can get that boost. But I understood that we have here a program in which there are at least at least 40 different bases for being able to get a boost. And not everybody who is an underrepresented minority gets a boost. So it's really hard to figure out if anyone is being disadvantaged in a system like that. And, and that's where I was worried about standing because I'm trying to understand how the system is operating to actually advantage minorities in a way that is harmful to anyone else in this system. Yeah, and I think that attributes to the careful cue that UNC has taken to this court's decisions in uh, Fisher II, making sure you know, universities find themselves in this Goldilocks problem about you know, considering it too much or too little. You, you, the university but there has- are other considerations, is the point. Everyone, yes. everyone can get a boost for all sorts of reasons. Minorities don't automatically get a boost under this system, so it's hard to know whether anyone's being disadvantaged from the mere fact that a minority could get a boost in this environment, right? Okay. With all due respect, that does not move me in the slightest. We would never say anything like that if the racial shoe were on the other foot. Oh, we've got a program. It gives whites a preference as such over non-whites. Oh, but it's okay because we have all sorts of other things that we give preferences to, to trumpet players and, and to people from Wyoming and, and people who speak several languages. There are lots of different preferences, but we're giving a preference to white people as such. And, and we, we fuzz it all up because we, we, we hide it in a whole bunch of other preferences. And because we do that, no non-white even has standing 
to complain about that, can come to court and say, this is not right. And who knows, you know, what would have happened if we hadn't gotten, had that pluff. We would never say that somehow that there isn't standing in the case. And, and no, no a, a court opinion that I've ever seen, Supreme Court opinion, has said anything like that. So with all due respect to Justice Jackson, that one doesn't move me. Yeah, I mean, one could argue that if indeed it's it's one of you know forty preferences, it's 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 almost nothing, you know. Um, then why are you fighting so hard in this case? I mean, what is it that what exactly are you defending? You know, if it's something that to put another way, a difference that makes no difference is no difference. Yeah, so, we, 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 we and we may come back to that a little bit later. Is it you know a small tip? Is it you know, or if we got rid of it, will things mm-hmm. you know um, will the numbers absolutely plummet? But yes, when I'm often having a let's say a conversation with my spouse or something, he says, "Well, you know, why are you fighting so hard? It doesn't really make a difference." It's, if it doesn't make a difference, humor me, okay? You know, you know. So, so, but I'm making an you know an even you know a more technical law point that of course there has to be standing when the government just to be for someone to be able to challenge a system when they say someone else is being advantaged over me in any way shape or form because of my race or that person's race of course they have to be able to bring a lawsuit they have standing i'm not saying that they always win but i heard just and maybe you know i'm only hearing this clip for the first time but when you say that there really shouldn't be standing. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, she did actually at another point in the oral argument. I didn't want to emphasize this uh, in our discussions, but she did go on at, at some length about the question of standing with the, the idea that, well, it's very hard to particularize the harm that any one applicant is, is having to say, well, I was the one that wasn't admitted because you know, of, of someone else, you know. And, and we would never say that if the racial shoe were on the other foot. We, and so we, we just can't say that. That would uh, undermine discrimination law across the board. We can't do that. Okay, so here's some more discussion on these general issues. Um, sometimes race does correlate to some experiences and not others. If you're black, you're more likely to be in an under-resourced school, you're more likely to be taught by teachers who are not uh, uh, as qualified as others. You're more likely to be viewed as less academic, as having less academic potential. Even in your own arguments in your brief, you correlate race to lots of other things that are not necessarily causal, causal but which do correlate. How do you tease that out? Well, How do you, you want an admissions officer to say, um, I'm not going to look at the race of a child to see if they had all of those socioeconomic barriers present, and despite that, that they got very high high school scores, maybe a little lower or a lot lower SAT scores, but I'm going to think about that. You're asking them to just shunt it aside? Yeah, racial, racial classifications have always been disfavored for a number of reasons. They are necessarily uh, divisive. 
they uh, carry stigmatic harm. So why is it that in the Reconstruction era, just when the 13th, 14th amendments were being passed, Congress spent a lot of money in trying to get black children, whether they were children of slaves or free slaves, to be educated in integrated schools. They had a belief, didn't they, that integration itself provided a value. Um, that is true. Of course, all, most of the Freedmen Bureau's activities are entirely consistent with this court's existing strict scrutiny rationale, even in the educational context, that remediation is an acceptable, compelling interest. But that's only remediation for what? For slavery. Well, and these programs were made available to black free children. Well, many of them. Well, and that's true. And also the Freedmen Bureau. And the Berea. Kentucky school that was supported by federal funds required a 50-50, 50, 50, 50 black percent children and 50 white percent children. I'm not sure that the sources that are cited in the brief support that view. They, there, was, there was a desire to make the education of Berea open to all, but as far as we can tell, the actual policy was they did not make distinction among applicants by race. The only requirement from what we could tell is a willingness to actually be educated in an integrated and co-educational environment at Berea College. So Berea I'm, College, of course, was also a private now school. You're okay. So, Andy, we didn't play Justice Sotomayor in our earlier originalism clip, but that was an originalist question she was asking about the history accompanying the 13th and, and 14th Amendment. And, Andy, once again, we come back to the question of whether uses of race then were about remedies and not diversity, kind of backward-looking rather than forward-looking. Remedies are about making amends for the, the sins of the past. Diversity is about just what's good policy going forward. And if it's a remedy, whether it's for slaves only or for free blacks, it still wasn't about any other racial group. It was about the group of the the, the racial group, the ethnic group that really was the, the, the main group enslaved in America, um, whether it was only slaves or free blacks. It was about blacks, again, as distinct from, say, Hispanics or any other group that might claim benefits under a diversity rationale. So that clip by Justice Sotomayor is – also heartening to me because she's asking originalist questions, you know, as um, were the other two um, liberals on the court, Kagan and, and Jackson. So that's all good. And the final thing is there was an honesty in one little thing that she just slipped in because affirmative action debate is not always honest. But she, when she talked about SAT scores, she, she actually thinks said a little or a lot of differential. And sometimes, actually, it's it's more than a little. There was an acknowledgement of that in, in her question, I think. Yeah, I mean, she seemed to be saying that, that race um, was a proxy for all sorts of things, that, that um, you got information about a whole host of socioeconomic factors just by knowing the race. Um, so, and, and this is the Sonia Sotomayor who was confirmed to the Supreme Court, who talked about her own life experiences, who had described herself as a, a Latina, who would, would experience things as a Latina. There was an authenticity in some of the, what she was talking about. She believes that many people who are non-white go through life and, and, and are perceived by others. That was a really great clip that you, you picked. You're, you're, you're hearing 
um, some of Justice Sotomayor's themes and and hearing her vision. It does seem, though, that that the that the argument that she was making, um, you know, it said, well, if you hear that someone is black, then you hear all these other things as well, mm-hmm. and that I, I have to admit that I didn't love that. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's it's quite stereotyping. Um, and it certainly is not true of, of all, all black applicants. And to the extent that it is true of an individual applicant, that information can be communicated um, in a more particularized way through the essay, through the, the counselor's uh, you know, mm-hmm. discussion, through the, the, the actual nature of the school. There's, there's many other ways that that can be uh, communicated. So, And Andy, what you're talking about then in doctrine speak is, is the formal use of race as a category genuinely the least restrictive way of thinking about these things? Right. Okay, so we're almost done with these uh, arguments, then we'll hear some arguments from the, the other side, but um, let's play one with Justice Kagan here. This actually starts with Justice Gorsuch. Um, but then quickly goes over to Justice Kagan. Um, Our our precedents, just turning to our precedents for a moment, uh, distinguish on the one hand between racial quotas, which uh, Justice Powell and Bakke said would be impermissible, with uh, pursuing racial diversity and critical mass of different races on campus, in Grutter, for example. How are we to think about distinguishing between those concepts? Well, so... The racial diversity point is interesting because the court's other precedents have rejected racial diversity as a compelling interest in the employment context, with res- in Wygant at least. It's rejected um, racial diversity as a relevant factor in uh, K through 12 education. So we think that, that Grutter is an exception to that, and those other cases are better reasoned in this point in terms of disfavoring the use of race by the government. So on your view, and I take this to be the purport of most of your briefs, not Uh, putting aside the last 10 pages or so. But in your view, it really wouldn't matter if there was a precipitous decline in minority admissions, African-American, Hispanic, one or the other. Um, You know, if I think uh, there are some numbers in in this case, but, you know, suppose that it just fell through the floor. Would it, it just, you know, too bad? Well, I don't think that it's going to fall through the floor if the university is actually committed to the broader diversity at once. Because right. Can- I know you think that, and there's been obviously a lot of the litigation has been about that. How much will it decline, and your expert and their expert. But the logic of your position suggests that that really doesn't matter. I mean, the last 10 pages of your brief where you say, uh, is, 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 has there been narrow tailoring here, it matters in that 10 pages. But it doesn't matter if you're saying there's a categorical rule, no race uh, uh, shall be involved in admissions decisions, then it doesn't matter if minority enrollment or particular kinds of minority enrollment fall through the floor, does it? If the, if the application process is open and that, and that is a result of the criteria that the university has elected to choose and it's not discriminatory under this court's other precedents, then, then that is, the, that is the, the educational decision the university has made. I doubt any university would ever make that decision. That has not been the experience, for example, in Florida, which is race neutral, has very similar demographics to UNC, and by UNC's own admission in this record, actually achieves better racial diversity as well as 50% greater number of Right, well that gets campus. us back to this question of, of, of what universities can do with what purpose 
to achieve racial diversity even without being explicit about uh, uh, racial classifications. But putting that aside, I mean, I, 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 I guess what I'm saying is your brief, and this is very explicit in your brief, is like it just doesn't matter if our institutions look like America. Um, you say this on page 11 in your reply brief. And I guess what I'm asking you is, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it? These are the pipelines to leadership in our society. It might be military leadership. It might be business leadership. It might be leadership in the law. It might be leadership in all kinds of different areas. Universities are the pipeline to that leadership. Now, if universities are not racially diverse and your rule suggests that it doesn't matter, well, then all of those institutions are not going to be racially diverse either. I, I and, and I thought that part of what it meant to be an American and to believe in American pluralism is that actually our institutions, you know, are reflective of who we are as, as a people in all our variety. I think that's right. I think the reason that we think that and why that is a great American ideal is because we expect that the government is going to be open to everybody who wishes to apply and that because merit and your worth as a person and your value as a contributory citizen is not correlated with your skin color. And so naturally, a government that treats people fairly and that makes opportunity open to all will necessarily see racial diversity. I thought Justice Kagan beautifully articulated her concerns and themes, and she made a powerful argument. And it connects to what we talked about before, because part of the answer is, even without taking race formally into account, you could get a certain racial diversity by using proxies, 10% plans, lotteries, other things moving from a 98% SAT cutoff to a 96%. SAT cutoff and, and then using a lottery above that or what have you. And so that was part of the debate, about, you know, it, um, how much would the numbers plummet if you used something other than race? And then she made these points about pipelines to success and looking like America. These are big themes in the cases, in, in the Gruder case. Some of the sounds like stuff that Neil and I had back in, in 1996 one pushback that the lawyer didn't offer but could have is the question, well, does every chess team have to look like America and not just racially but uh, by gender, every physics department, every football team, every basketball team? Is it a problem when they look like America with certain races, certain non-white races overrepresented? Because if everything is supposed to look kind of proportional, if it's supposed to look like America – Oh, does every single pocket need to be quotified? That's, that would have been a more aggressive pushback. But I was very impressed by um, that, by the way Justice Kagan presented it. You hear in her voice that she's a bit of a consequentialist, a, pr a pragmatist. She thinks results are important. It was a, a conversation about pure abstract Kantian principle versus um, the practicalities of, of trying to create a society where everyone believes that the thing is fair and that they've got a chance to rise uh, to the top. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that, you know, we talked at the beginning about some of the different uh, points of the argument, that there, that there are various aspects of strict scrutiny that need to be satisfied. And 
um, because, and I think we need to relate it back to that because just listening to this, you, my first reaction was, well, this is very eloquent, and you know, I might agree with her on a uh, on a sort of a policy basis that this is a good thing, but this is a court of law, you know, and you know what is the legal issue? So I suppose you know the, here. So I suppose that. Um, the point here would be to, to to make the point that this is a compelling interest. Um, it is, it, it is, it is, and that at the end of the day, it's about creating a nation where everyone feels um, included. And will they? Will we have that fellow feeling um, if the main pipelines to leadership look very um, demographically unrepresentative? So, so I th- I thought she played that for. I, I, listen, this is the first time I'm hearing some of this, but I thought you heard some distinctive Sotomayor themes, some distinctive Kagan themes, some distinctive Thomas themes, some and, and and Gorsuch themes. So so Andy, you picked some great clips for us. So so far to sort of summarize some of the points that have been made here, I think that the um, the justices that are speaking in favor of racial uh, preferences as they currently are practiced, are making the point that they are necessary, that some of the proposed alternatives are really not any different. But what they haven't entirely said is is that they're working. And they haven't quite said that, So, which obviously would be important if we want one to continue them. Um, so let's just listen to a short clip that sort of sums up, I think, the, their position on this, and this is Justice Sotomayor. So if we overrule Bakke, Grutter, and Fisher, uh, the diversity admissions programs across the nation, based on those cases, uh, will have to be reformulated yes. in every instance. We will have to uh, aff- work affecting countless existing programs. Correct. We're reducing underrepresented minorities. Yes. We are depriving others who are not there of the benefits of diversity. Yes. And we're doing all this because race is one factor among many that is never solely determinative, correct? Yes. Seems like a lot to ask. Okay, sums it up. Okay, so the, the case is being made, but I think that one of the points that um, was, was shining through along with the notion that there's some effectiveness here, um, or, and there's a, a need for these preferences, was also the notion that they're not overly intrusive, that they're one factor among many. Okay. But at the same time, there's worry about getting rid of them. So, you know, perhaps there's a little inconsistency there. So let's, let's just hear some, some clips here about uh, the forecasts um, that, for what might happen if the uh, preferences were somehow removed. So here's um, Solicitor General uh, Prelogar uh, in her opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The court has heard hours of argument on the constitutional issues in this case, and so I would like to take a step back and focus on the profound consequences of the court's decision here for the nation that we are and the nation that we aspire to be. Petitioner seeks a sweeping ruling that would harm students at schools and colleges throughout the nation. A blanket ban on race-conscious admissions would cause racial diversity to plummet at many of our nation's leading educational institutions. 
Race-neutral alternatives right now can't make up the difference, so all students at those schools would be denied the benefits of learning in a diverse educational environment. Okay, so that's our first statement. Now we've got um, Justice Sotomayor. Now virtually all of the states that have banned consideration of race in any respect experience a dramatic drop in enrollment of unrepresented minority students, particularly black students and Native American students, but particularly black students. And even that drop lasted in most of those institutions, if they're not continuing now, at their most prestigious colleges and universities, correct? That's correct. So there is a high price to pay by banning the minor use of race in college admissions, isn't there? I agree with that, Justice Sotomayor. Okay. So as I was saying to Justice Barrett, I do think it's the case that there are some states and certainly some institutions today that can fully achieve a diverse student body without needing to take race into account. With respect to California and Michigan in particular, since your question referred to them, I would point the court to the amicus brief filed by those university systems in those states which have explained that actually they have struggled despite implementing any number of race-neutral alternatives to actually see true diversity across all of their campuses, including their most selective campuses. And University of California in particular points to Berkeley and UCLA as places where there have been these dramatic declines in diversity, racial diversity on campus. So that, that was General Prelogo responding to a question from Justice Kavanaugh. Okay, so now, so what would you say about this? I mean, does this reveal a certain inconsistency, would you say, in the argument? And you've picked great clips. So one, yes, there's a tension between saying, oh, it's a small little factor, it's a wee little thing, it's, you know, lots of other factors, it's just, it's just a little tiebreaker, tiny little thing, but if we got rid of it, the numbers would plummet. There's a deep tension between that. I think the more honest recognition is, in some situations, the numbers might very well plummet. That's the first point. Second point is, maybe they wouldn't plummet if you came up with proxies that were formally race neutral, but designed to actually boost the numbers. And we're back to that earlier Ian Ayers point that when you change a a system to something that's formally race neutral, you're allowed to do it to boost racial minorities, but not to limit them. And that's not really fully symmetric. And that's an interesting point. Third point, the experiences of some states that got rid of affirmative action altogether, in part because, for example, the state voters, by initiative and referendum, mandated an end to race-conscious affirmative action above whatever was constitutionally required for remedial and other, other purposes in places like maybe Michigan or University of California. There was conversation about just how much minority numbers declined precipitously But remember that there's going to be a more precipitous decline. I think this is just a a kind of social science point. If a few states get rid of affirmative action, then if all all states were forced to get rid of affirmative action, because if a few do, then there's going to be a displacement effect away from University of California or University of Michigan to other schools where affirmative action is still permissible. But if no school is allowed to do a certain kind of affirmative action, the numbers might not quite play out uh, in exactly the same way. I think it's not just a matter of there would be, there has been. So if you look at the University of California, you know, they're not allowed to um, 
admit students with lower you know SAT scores than they would otherwise. Um, so if you take a school like UCLA, which is a very fine school, they have a very low percentage of African American students. Why is that? Well, let's assume that their average SAT was, I'll just make something up, let's say 1350 or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it may well be sure. higher, but let's, yeah, just, yeah. let's just say that yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. So now you you would admit, let's say, African-American students who had 1350 or higher. They're not allowed to discriminate. Okay. So, so okay. But the fact is that those students are getting into Harvard. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so of course many of them will go to Harvard um, mm-hmm. rather than UCLA. So mm-hmm. then, who's left for UCLA? They can't mm-hmm. take students with lower SATs. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you wind up with nobody left. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side, if Harvard isn't allowed to do that, then it's a very it's a very different situation. Correct. So um, for for UCLA, yeah. Right. So this is the um, current situation. This is not speculative. This is actually right. what's happening. Right, so. right. So and that wasn't. I think that would have been an, a partial answer to Justice Sotomayor's question. And I'm not sure that I heard that from the lawyers. Aren't great statisticians sometimes. Social scientists. The other thing, though, that was very heartening to me, Andy, is when the Solicitor General of the United States said, "Oh." Take a look at an amicus brief on that issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's hope that happens in the uh, ISL oral argument, Andy. Yes. Well, maybe a former solicitor general will do so, or acting solicitor general. Okay. Um, well, they're actually yes. Um, all three of the people that are going to be arguing um, have um, uh, SG connections. Neil Katyal was former acting solicitor general. Don Verley was former solicitor general, and Elizabeth Prologger is current. Solicitor General, and I think those are the three people on the anti-ISL side. Fifteen right. minutes for each of those three. Yeah. So this is the Moore versus Harper case. So, you know, yeah. of course, Akil is is demonstrating a, a, a behavioral phenomenon that's similar. Like if you buy a stock, um, you, you might be invested in a mutual fund, but if you buy a stock yourself, you only care about how that stock does, <laughs> even though it might actually be much more important how the mutual fund does. But yeah. you didn't choose that one, so yeah. um, well. So, the, the the ISL case is very important. It in is. This case it, is. it is okay. 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 Now, before um, we before we let, uh, but, stop, but, for, but Andy, those were great clips. Thank you. So before we stop, I think we need to uh, let the uh, the other side have at least a couple of words. Um, we're going to continue this next time. We'll lead off with some of the uh, responses. Again, there's a bunch of different arguments on the other side. Um, one of the one of the arguments centered around what, in some ways, the case was about uh, the particular cases, which was the the allegation of discrimination against Asian Americans. Um, so, let's that's the Harvard. That's the Harvard case. That's not the, the Har- UNC yeah, case. That's right. That's the Harvard case. So let's, uh, and as is, will be pointed out in some of these, uh, this uh, colloquy. So let's uh, listen to Justice Alito uh, querying uh, Attorney Waxman uh, on this question. Another former uh, Solicitor General of the United States, this time representing pri- private clients. But um, the SGs get a lot, of, and former SGs get a lot of the plum oral argument gigs that Asian Americans demonstrably benefit from a holistic admissions policy that considers race as one factor among many. Now, with respect to Harvard, there was 
to say that there was evidence in this case is quite an understatement. The district court found, I'm citing, I'm quoting page 261 of the joint appendix, and it's reiterated by the Court of Appeals on page 80 of the joint appendix, that there was, quote, no evidence of discrimination against Asian Americans whatsoever. Again, now on page 264, there was consistent, unambiguous, and convincing testimony that there was no discrimination in the administration admissions process in general and the personal rating in particular. The, the plaintiffs in this case could not, after four years of discovery in which they handpicked applications to view in total, they could not produce a single witness to testify that he or she had been discriminated well, Mr. against. <clears throat> Mr. Waxman, let me stop you there because you referred to the personal score. And that's a score that Harvard gives based on character traits such as integrity, courage, kindness, and empathy. But the record shows that Asian student applicants get the lowest personal scores of any other group. What accounts for that? Is it, it, it has to be one of two things. It has to be that they really do lack integrity, courage, kindness, and empathy to the same degree as students of other races, or there has to be something wrong with this personal score. That's, that is, I mean, I, I want to get to what the evidence was there, but that, that syllogism, with all due respect, is wrong. There was, for example, a study that was done in 1983 that looked at why it was that female applicants to graduate school at the University of No, Colorado. just address this. The personal okay, here's score that's given to Asian applicants to Harvard, why, do they, why are they given a lower score than any other group? Okay, so the answer to why they, as a group, why there is a slight numerical disparity with respect to the personal rating of Asian Americans, but, and also a slight numerical disparity to the advantage of Asian Americans with respect to the extracurricular rating and the academic rating was the answer that their expert gave with respect to the latter two, which is that the only way that you can, the only model that can be created to figure out what was going into the personal rating couldn't look at almost anything that admissions officers look at in those ratings. It can't, there's no way that it could model what the guidance counselor letters said, what the teacher letters said, what the essays said, what the interviewers letters said. In other words, I thought what the they, interviewers did not rate the applicants lower than other, uh, than other applicants based on race. There, there was not the disparity in what was done by what was said by the interviewers. The, with respect to the alumni interviewers, the alumni based interviewers. on based on the subset that was included here, that their subset, by the way, excluded all ALDC applicants. That is, even though they acknowledged that there was not only no evidence of discrimination against Asian American ALDCs, but they did better. They eliminated from their their model. Applicants that represent, on average, 30% of the admitted I, class. I, I still, putting aside the, the teacher recommendations or guidance counselor recommendations, which I'll come to, I still haven't heard any explanation for the disparity between the personal scores that are given to Asians. They rank below whites. They rank 
way below Hispanics and really way below African Americans. What and you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of applicants, maybe thousands. What is the explanation for that? So the explanation that was I can't do better than the findings of fact in the trial court as affirmed and, and I and I but I want to make two points very clear with respect to your question. We all of this evidence was all of this was on display and in front of the trial court for this Asian American part of it for well more than a week, maybe two weeks. The district court found, considering all of the evidence, that there is, quote, no credible evidence that corroborates the improper discrimination suggested by SFFA's interpretation of the personal rating. Page well, all right, I'll try one more time. The district court found, quote, a statistically significant and negative relationship between Asian American identity and the personal rating assigned by Harvard admissions officers. That's correct. And what she said is the record will not allow a full explanation for, of that because it, the, the, this, this, there, is, there was no evidence with respect to what teachers said, what guidance counselors said, what these students wrote, wrote about. But what we can say with respect to the allegation of discrimination in this case, which was the, the, the definition of discrimination that was at issue in Bakke and Grutter and Fisher and which their expert, which their lawyer got up at opening statement and said, when we talk about discrimination, in this case, we're talking about discrimination in admissions outcomes. And here again, the district court found and the Court of Appeals also concluded that there was no evidence of discrimination in admissions outcomes against Asian if Americans, you whatever you think about the personal rating, which is, after all, simply a number Justice that Justice Alito would like to ask a question. I'm sorry. Go I'm ahead. not trying to filibuster you. Uh, finish, your, finish your sentence. Then okay. I will ask one more question. I just, I, I want to make one other thing clear to the extent that it's not clear from the record. The personal rating, like the academic rating and the extracurricular rating and the athletic rating, is a number that is put down by a, quote, first reader. That is, the file comes in. It's not usually complete. And just as a matter of triage, one of the 40 admissions officers goes through and gives these numerical numbers. It is, the testimony was, it is not considered in any way once the subcommittees and committees meet. It, quote, fades into the background. It is not the basis of admissions decisions. And so not only did the court find as fact that those, that, that slight disparity was not evidence of discrimination, even in the personal rating. It had a snow effect with respect to outcomes. It makes no difference whatsoever? It's, it doesn't it's affect not that it makes no difference whatsoever. Look at what the expert testimony was, and I, I realize we're- Does we're, it make a difference or doesn't it make a difference? It doesn't make a statistical difference in admissions then, outcomes. Then why do you do both it? courts then, why do you do it? We, I said, if I it mean- It doesn't matter, as, why do you do it? We do it as a matter of triage. Right now, Harvard is getting, last year got 61,000 applications for 1,600 slots. And it is entirely rational way of figuring out where, how you are gonna allocate your attention 
to ask an admissions officer as the file is being developed, just go through in a very rough way and rate a particular application based on what you can see on these four metrics. The fact that Asian Americans got a marginally, on average, a marginally lower personal rating score is no more evidence of discrimination against them than the fact that they got a marginally higher rating than any data can show on academics and extracurriculars. It doesn't mean that they're either smarter or people think they're smarter. So, you know, as a person that spent some time with admissions, a um, couple comments uh, on that analysis. So it is being used, the personal score for triage, clearly. So they're throwing out a lot of the application. Triage matters. You know, they're talking about, oh, it doesn't, you know, go before the whole committee. That's because they've already thrown out the application before it gets to the committee. So that's that's one thing. Another thing is they said, well, you know, the it's not that much lower than the others, he says. But in fact, the the Asian American applicants as a group are higher you know, in, in other respects, you would expect them to, to be higher, you know, on these scores. So if you adjust for the rest of their application, then this is way disproportionately low. And, That's you know, so, so he, he yeah. doesn't say that. So there's a, and there's a couple of other fallacies, you know, in, in, in what uh, Attorney Waxman put forth there, I think. Good, good points. So I'm going to be very blunt now because I was impressed by what the, most of the justices said most of this time. And, and Sam Alito, I keep saying Sam because he's my friend, Justice Samuel Alito is a brilliant questioner at oral argument. He's like a laser beam, and he's just relentless when he's, he's got a point, and well done, Justice Alito. Um, so I'm going to be blunt here. Harvard discriminates against Asians. It's overwhelmingly clear to me when I actually looked at the data several years ago. They discriminate against Asians not because Asians don't get the same kind of affirmative action other racial minority groups get. That's not the claim that, okay, they, they don't get the same kind of plus that blacks get um, or the same kind of plus that uh, Hispanics might get. They are being discriminated against vis-a-vis -vis whites. It's easier to get in as a white than as an Asian American. That's what the statistics overwhelmingly show. That is not affirmative action in any way, shape, or form. That's just Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Education, Black Codes, Jim Crow. That can't be what affirmative action properly is. Harvard deserves to lose um, just on that ground alone. Shame on them. Um, and that, that's, that's not the kind of affirmative action that Neil Katyal and I back in 1996 sort of advocated for. Andy, just on that. Attorney Waxman said, well, the district court. Yes, the district court actually um, was shocking in what it said. Maybe some lawyers are statistically illiterate. It's possible that the district court just doesn't understand statistics. And I, I don't have them all in front of me, but I looked at this very carefully several years ago, and I was shocked at the district court's finding and the court of appeals. And Waxman did what a good attorney does. He, he, he actually had that. He hid behind the findings of of fact that, Andy, here we come to, as I said, there's a lot of dishonesty in affirmative action policy. This is, this is part of it. And when Attorney Waxman says, oh, it's slight, it's marginal, these are not honest characterizations, actually. 
Well, um, also, if you've again, if you've spent any time in admissions at a very selective university, any difference is not slight. Okay, these yeah. are students that have you know close to eight hundred, you know, on an SAT, on an individual SAT. They they may be near the top of their class. Anything, any little demerit, anything that's a little bit off is not. It might be slight numerically. It's not slight qualitatively in the way the applications are being considered. But here's my question for you. You say, okay, this is not affirmative action. This is just, you know, discrimination out now. The question is, is this discrimination in whole or in part a function of a system that employs affirmative action? Does affirmative action contribute to this discrimination? Well, under a theory of diversity... You see, you, you know, and when you talk about, oh, looking like America, well, then they're not enough without pluses and minuses. You say, well, we have too few blacks and we have too few Hispanics. But you also might say, oh, we have too many Asians. Uh, we have too many Jews. That doesn't look like America. That's one of the deep problems with a diversity theory as opposed to a remedy uh, theory that's all about the sins of America, the, its original sin rooted in slavery. It would focus, I think, particularly on slaves and their descendants, perhaps even more broadly the slave race, so to speak, because we, we, we haven't talked today, but we will in the next episode, perhaps about affirmative action for, let's say, um, blacks from Africa recent black immigrants from Nigeria or Kenya um, and the like. My mom grew up in East Africa. My wife grew up in East Africa, West Africa. A diversity theory can easily move toward proportionality and on proportionality, certain groups like Asians and, and Jews might be seen as overrepresented. And that's less of a danger, perhaps, if we focus more on an affirmative action as a proper remedy. Why don't we focus on affirmative action as a proper remedy? Because Supreme Court case law doesn't let us focus on that. And if we did, it would be mainly about blacks. I think we need to talk about the Native American experience, the indigenous American experience of, I'm not sure that Hispanics actually would be the beneficiaries and, and Asians might not be the main cost bearers as they are under the Harvard uh, model. If it's a remedial theory, oh, it should end at a certain point, and maybe in, in, in the, some of the clips you got for us um, next time, we'll, we'll talk about you know phasing out affirmative action, which makes more sense if you're talking about reparations in effect for the sins of the past, as opposed to some really good thing for America going forward. Uh, a diversity theory, um, which again tends to, in certain versions, and you heard it in Justice Kagan. Uh, inclined toward looking like America, you know, which suggests proportionality in general. And if it's proportionality, Asians and Jews, are, and of course, those are not completely analytically distinct characteristic categories. There are people who are Asians and Jews, but Asians and Jews are, are overrepresented in places like um, Harvard and University of, of North Carolina, perhaps, um, compared to their numbers in society. And also, by the way, even the category of Asian American is a little bit complex because there are real variations between Chinese Americans and Korean Americans and, and Indian and, and South Asians, in, in Indians and Pakistanis who, who might generally be 
um, overrepresented as compared to other sorts of Asian Americans, Filipinos, Vietnamese, um, and other groups. So there's Justice Alito has Justice Alito offers a hypothetical at one point on uh, uh, with an Afghanistan uh, student. So uh, so Asia is certainly plenty there. So we're going to close, but let's. I just want to play one more clip from Justice Roberts um, that kind of closes the loop here on the Asian point that brings up some of the other data that uh, you spoke about because uh, I think we should. Otherwise, it's going to seem like it's sitting out there by itself, and I think it deserves to be played. What do you do with the charts in their brief? I think they're on page 24, 24. 43, the academic uh, decile and the comparative treatment of uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asian-Americans. You don't see a surprising disparity in that? So uh, there's a lot to be said about that, but I guess the first thing I would say about that chart is that their own expert agreed that because that chart is simply a descriptive statistic, it is, quote, not equal to evidence of discrimination. It reflects a pattern which might or might not be real. Now, understand that that chart that they've displayed for you, they have eliminated all ALDC applicants. So one-third of the admitted class over six years, they're not even in that chart. That chart is predicated on something called an academic index. An academic index is a formula that looks at two things, high school grades and test scores. And so people in the different racial categories, uh, uh, they have a different result based on other factors, which include race. They, They have a different result because among the many, many, many characteristics of any particular individual applicant that Harvard considers, one that it does not consider is the academic index. That is the the very metric that they're displaying for you. Harvard doesn't even use the only, the testimony in the case was the only reason that the academic index is even calculated is because the Ivy League athletic rules require that your recruited athlete class the, the AA for your AI for your recruited athlete class not be more than two standard deviations below okay, the Mr. matriculating Waxman, aside, class last year. Put aside the hypothetical about the African-American applicant who's a legacy. Take two African-American applicants in the same category, however you want to take it. Uh, they both get or both can get a tip, right, based on their race. And yet, they may have entirely different views. Some of their views may contribute to diversity from the perspective of Asians or whites. Some of them may not. And yet, it's true that they're eligible for the same increase uh, in their opportunities for admission based solely on their skin color. So the, the point— That was a question. No, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to answer your question. There is no doubt that for, as the testimony showed— that for applicants who are essentially so strong on multiple dimensions, so extraordinarily strong on multiple dimensions, that they are sort of on the bubble, that they might, they are a real candidate for admission. African Amer- being African American, or being Hispanic, or in some instances being Asian American, can provide one of many, many tips that will put you in. People say that, yes, but you will have to concede if it provides one of many, then in some cases it will be determined. I do. I do concede that. Okay, so we're talking about race as a determining factor in admission to Harvard. Race for some highly qualified applicants 
can be the determinative factor just as being the, a, you know, an oboe player in a year in which the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra needs an oboe player will yeah. be the tip. We did not fight a civil war about oboe players. I, we did fight a civil war to eliminate racial discrimination, and that's why it's a matter of, of, of considerable concern. And I think it's important to, for you to establish whether or not granting a credit based solely on skin color is based on a stereotype when you say this brings diversity of viewpoint. It may not bring diversity of viewpoint, viewpoint in a particular case at all. And we've talked about, Andy, how all the other justices had originalist-like comments or questions, even Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, who does not fancy himself an originalist, is making an originalist point when he talks about what we fought the Civil War, we uh, Americans fought the Civil War over. You can't not do originalism if you're serious about constitutional law. It's going to come in one way or another, maybe um, well done, less well done, consciously, less self-consciously. To, to try to do American constitutional law, which revolves around this thing called the Constitution, which is a text that actually has a, a history associated with it, to try to do American constitutional law without being originalist in some way, shape, or form would be like trying to play chess without ever moving your queen. You just can't do it. Fair point. Although I have to quote Mr. Spock when you said, you can't mm-hmm. not do originalism and do constitutional law. Sir, you are employing a double negative. <laughs> okay, so he, he went a little bit beyond the question of just Asians there, but uh, just for a second on the academic index, um, it's true. It's used for athletic calculation, but that doesn't change the fact that it's grades and SATs. <laughs> you know, and, and that chart that he's talking to, that he's talking about, um, has some astounding uh, numbers on it. It I be- does. I believe it shows, for example, that uh, an Asian American in, I believe it's the ninth decile of uh, academic index, in other words, whose grades and, and SAT scores are in the 90th percentile among applicants to Harvard, um, has a lower chance of admission than an African American student in either the second or the third decile. Yeah, well, Seth Waxman, it's hard because Harvard's case is, is, is very weak. Now, here's what he has. He has district court findings, so he emphasizes those, but I've criticized the district court. And I've also said there's just a, a lot of general dishonesty in the thing. Oh, it's a small tip like you know, being an oboe player. It's actually not in a whole bunch of situations. It's way more than that. And then he says, oh, it can be a tip for Asian Americans well, maybe some Asian Americans, but it's a huge minus for lots of Asian Americans. And to repeat, that's not affirmative action in any way, shape, or form. It's just discriminating against Asians in favor of whites. And the mere fact that in addition you're doing something else you know, in some other part of your system, okay, but you just can't discriminate against Asians in favor of whites. And that's what Harvard is unambiguously doing if you actually understand statistics. And maybe the district court just didn't understand statistics, or maybe it just can't bring itself to acknowledge that the great Harvard in its backyard is, is acting lawlessly, or maybe it's worried this is, you know, if you, if you pull on that, then affirmative action unravels more generally. Uh, and there's lots more to say in our next episode on, on all of this. But 
But part of the, the dishonesty is we're calling it diversity, um, and maybe it's not about pure intellectual diversity. Maybe it's about some other stuff. And maybe, as I said, it's most of all about remedy, but we're not allowed to say so because Supreme Court case law doesn't let us say that. And I and, and Neil in 1996 wrote this piece all, all about the diversity theory, but we did not believe in box checking at all. And this system is a box checking system. And we said it has to be a very minor factor race like oboe playing and i'm not sure that it is and we say if you're going to do it you have to do it in ways that actually bring people together in universities that integrate them but now we have all sorts of ethnic houses and balkanization so these were great clips because our audience is hearing some of the real issues in this very complex um, area of social policy i was moved by justice by many of the things they heard, but Justice Kagan's idea about looking like America, but you see it does have a downside because it does looking like America mean not having too many Jews, not having too many Asians, not having too many blacks, you know, in on this team or in this department. That's the danger. You know, from and one of many dangers. Yeah, just to, you know, clarify my own uh comments here. You know, usually I don't express an opinion too much on this podcast. No, but you're an, you're you're an expert on admissions, Andy. How many you've you've done? How many you've participated? In how many thousands of applications? Um, in your capacity as an, an alumni interview officer, probably about twelve thousand. Twelve thousand. So, so um, but but anyway, um, you know, so what I'm trying to do in terms of my comments is encourage an honest debate. Yes. So on both sides, I, I had some criticisms for, yes. for you know, things that were said when I felt that they, they were, you know, obscuring the, the reality of the situation. So because it's a very complicated issue and there's clearly, you know, well-meaning people can have points on both sides. So, yes. um, and so I'm not trying to come out on one side or the other, but only to try to hold both sides feet to the fire so that the, so that we can have an, an honest debate. So next time we'll have some more uh, parts of the oral argument and we'll, some more analysis. And ultimately, you'll have to draw your own conclusions, audience, and then the Supreme Court will draw theirs. Um, and we'll talk about that when that happens too. Um, next week, we expect to have part two of Steve Calabresi's uh, interview with us, where we're going to go back and talk about the brief some more and, and um, perhaps some uh, developments at the Federalist Society as well. And uh, I know that was a very popular episode with him last week. And then we'll be back with this again. So Great. thank you, Akil. Okay, thank you, Andy. Bye.